From Suffolk County, New York, this program is sponsored in part by WUSB, Long Island's largest non-commercial free-form radio station. Check them out at 90.1 FM or online at WUSB.FM. Previously on Writers Come Ice Cream. My name is Howard Gunston, and I want to be a writer when I grow up. I am sorry to say I don't think it's one for me. Star Wars, The Rebirth. And describe the experience of Ben and Jerry's cookie dough ice cream. Cure for all ales. So I've got to know, what's it take to be a writer? Huh, that's a good question. The biggest thing is to actually write. I'm going through the most incredible writer's block I've ever experienced. I think that's what made me really get serious about it. And really what what did it was facing mortality and, and the fact that my parents had passed away. When I look at something visual, I just put down whatever's in my mind. And then from that, I go line by line, just following my train of thought. I, I feel like it's, you know, story time. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read and, you know, and uh, hear what these people did. And if I can get, if, if my papers sound that way, it makes me very excited. It gives me some joy. But I've never once listed writer in any box asking for my occupation. When do I earn the title? I want a book on a bookshelf. I want to walk into Barnes & Noble or Borders or B. Dalton, and I want to see my name on those shelves. This is Writers, Ice Cream, a monthly craft talk where a pair of writers risk brain freeze to answer one question. What's it take to be a writer? Listener, we're back. It's been 12 months since our last episode, and for that I'm sorry. This podcast was supposed to be a simple eight-episode show interview a few guests at different points in their career, learn their tricks, eat some ice cream, and call it a wrap. But then the premise of the show began to evolve. Much like a runaway manuscript, the story of this podcast seemed to gain some traction, and the guest list climbed. Before I had even cut episode one, eight guests became ten, and ten became twelve. But as I began to tether those interviews together with my own story, that quest for the capital W... I hit a wall, and that wall had a name. Time. Time kicked my butt more than once. I'll save the details for a later date, but there are two things to know. First, most of our interviews were conducted in late 2015 and early 2016. This episode is no different. Second, though the reasons for the hiatus are varied, a short version is this. Once the show went into hibernation, it became easier to leave it alone, to forget it, than it ever was to pick up the microphone again. Resuming production intimidated me. I was proud of those first few episodes. What if the show had already peaked? What if I had peaked? If this sounds familiar, it's because apparently this was inevitable, had only we'd seen the clue way back in episode one. Don't remember? Well, what's a show on writing without a flashback? Here's a snippet from our very first episode. When do I earn the title? 
Perhaps when I publish my first novel, but here's my dilemma. I've been working on a manuscript longer than it took Brian Griffin to write faster than the speed of love. And so it is that I've written in spurts, finding it easier to stop and think about writing than keep at it and actually write. Listener, who knew my struggle to write would mirror my struggle to podcast? I'm not proud, just honest. Turns out I'm as insecure a podcaster as I am a writer. Or maybe formally insecure as a writer, because over the past two years, as I marched ever closer to graduation, I found a certain level of confidence. A confidence in my writing to experiment with things like flash fiction. The son with a mother and no father rests without sleeping in the basement of the fake home while the mother thumbs through the small box of cards and stops on a picture of two young hands, palms together in prayer. This is senior manuscript reader Artie Gunston, reading from my short, short story, Full Stop. faced man with the plastic, pinched smile, sits across from her nodding approval no one needs for a card no one wants. I'd never really written a story like this before, and I didn't set out to write it this time. But the characters came to me with a rawness that surprised me, a pain I felt compelled to honor, a truth I had to write. A fictional truth, yes, but a truth just the same. And after I wrote that truth, I found more in common with my guests than I had ever realized. Even my published guests, who I'd interviewed months before, suddenly sounded closer, clearer, Guess like Dr. Carl Safina. Another big group of dolphins had just surfaced alongside our moving vessel, leaping and splashing and calling mysteriously back and forth in their squealy, whistly way, with many babies swift alongside their mothers. And this time, confined to just the surface of such deep and lovely lives, I was becoming unsatisfied. This is Carl reading from his latest book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. And so close. This time, I allowed myself to ask them the question that is forbidden fruit. Who are you? Carl is a marine ecologist, conservationist, professor, and of course, a writer. Surely they have inner lives of some sort, but like a child who is admonished that what they really want to ask is impolite, a young scientist is taught that the animal mind, if there is such, is unknowable. Last episode, we spoke with Dr. Paul Lawrence, who, although writing for scientific journals, still wrote his articles as stories, albeit stories with lots of big words. And Dr. Carl Safina takes this concept to the next level. Beyond Words is a true story steeped in science, largely devoid of those big words, written for a general audience. So I baited him with some ice cream and lured him to the WSB studios to find out how he did it. How did you approach, when you decided that you wanted to write about animals thinking and feeling and having a consciousness that science wanted to deny was there, right. how did you figure out how you wanted to approach even constructing that narrative? Yeah, well, the question is, what will the narrative be? That's the question for me. Because I, I had an idea that I wanted to write something about animals um, that was not about conservation and not ocean-focused, like all my other work has been. So then the question was, okay, if I want to write an animal book, what will the, uh, the galvanizing idea be, and what will the narrative be? And um, I was sort of thrashing around with that for the better part of a year, thinking, am I going to tell stories about my dogs? Uh, 
am I am I going to you know sort of get swept back into conservation issues, or um, is it going to be one story that runs from the beginning to the end of the book? Is it going to be a few different things? What will it be? And then uh, I was on a cruise. Uh, as it says in the very opening of that book, and I just I just read the first paragraph of the book, but I was on a cruise in the Sea of Cortez, and there were a lot of dolphins around, and I was watching the dolphins every day, and I was also reading a book during this cruise about elephants and um, the, the traumatic psychological uh, responses that elephants have to seeing their family members getting killed. And... I thought, why is it that I am okay with killing fish because I, I go fishing and I, I'm okay with killing some kinds of fish? Why is it that I'm okay with other people killing deer, but I don't want to kill deer? And I think that killing an ape or an elephant or a dolphin is murder. What, why do I feel so differently about these different animals? And what I realized for me was that, uh, well, not for me. What I what I realized the difference was in my mind is that there are some animals that live in complex social groups, and they, as individuals, are defined by their relationships with other individuals. So I thought, well, you know, maybe the galvanizing idea for this book is those animals who really are who animals, because their relationship with others totally defines them. And that might be a good, a good way to hang a structure of a book on that. So those animals include things like elephants and wolves and uh, killer whales and other dolphins and some other whales and some others, but I, I wanted to pick three because I think three is a good amount and four or five is too many. And uh, I wanted to get around within that, you know, to see them in the wild, to show, I really wanted to show, and my, my idea started to change. I, I really wanted to just show what other animals' experience of life is and uh, simply show it, show what they do and why they do it and how much they try to stay alive and how much they try to keep their babies alive and stay out of danger. And, um, uh, you know, they don't have to think too terribly deeply about why they want to stay alive, and neither do we most of the time. We just want to stay alive. It's a very common imperative. And within that, I wanted to get to all of the other issues of cognition that I could think of, the, the controversies uh, some of which I think are very silly, are, are over are other species conscious? Um, and then some that are a little less silly. Who has empathy? What, what is empathy? Well, what is intelligence? And, uh, uh, and all these kinds of things. Who uses tools? Who makes tools? Who teaches? So uh, that, became, that became the form of, of the book. Listener, Carl's journey to find the narrative form of his book, to find the right structure to tell his story, offers a snapshot into my own struggle of the past two years, the pit of despair we MFAers know as thesis. My thesis was a thriller, that much I knew for certain, but was it YA or middle grade? An important distinction, because the intended audience for fiction, just as with Carl and Paul's nonfiction, dictates some of the form, some of the rules. 
But those rules become secondary when our characters, our subjects, rise for attention. When writers have no choice but to follow our story wherever it goes. At what point did you realize the role that, I guess, humanity's influence on each of these different species was going to well i started out trying to avoid humanity's influence which is ubiquitous and and it's basically all i ever have written about and worked on is how humans affect other living things and and the human interactions and relationships with the rest of the living world i wanted to in this book i just wanted to show how vivid other animals lives and perceptions are to them and I went to arguably the most protected populations of elephants and wolves and killer whales in the world. And in every case, they were getting killed by people. And it was, you know, it took me a minute to consider, do I want to leave that out? Um, and I couldn't because it was affecting what the animals were doing. So it, w- it could not be an honest book without including something about the the mortal pressure that they're under and what they you know how they have to try to live around that and and some of them don't make it and that is that is just the reality of uh, of this time and so Carl did exactly that he wrote the reality of his subject which required him to alter his original plan in a pretty fundamental way it's a truth he arrived at through exhaustive research I'm wondering if you could take this kind of into your research hat for a moment when mm-hmm. you're, whether you're in Africa or you're out on a ship. Yeah. How are you approaching research? Are you just furiously scribbling everything that you see? Because you're, you're writing in a very active, you know, present, yes. relating dialogue. Right. And I'm wondering how you're capturing all that and being right. in the moment. The main thing I always am thinking is uh, I need to bring the reader there with me. The reader has to be right next to me where we're walking, where we're sitting, what boat we're on. You have to be able to feel it all as, as best as I can possibly make that happen just with little marks on a page. And uh, so I used to write everything down and capture everything I possibly could. And I'm better now at editing on the spot and thinking, you know, this is something that I probably will never want and never need, and this is probably what I will want. So uh, usually I have a recorder and a, uh, and, a, and a pad of some, you know, paper pad of some sort, either, either a big notebook or a small pad in my pocket, and um, I'm just constantly making notes as I go along. I don't wait till the end of the day and then write things up. I constantly make notes and dictate notes and when I'm talking to people, I usually have the recorder on because you can't write fast enough. And when you start slowing people down, saying, wait a minute, I have to catch up, it ruins the conversation. So I, I spend a lot of time listening to, um, to conversations I've had many, many, many hours after I come home. And I transcribe from that what I want. I used to transcribe all of it and then look through it. But um, now, now I have a better sense of what I want out of it. But I try to bring a lot of it home anyway. Are you outlining or are you just kind of 
seeing where it goes. No, my joke is that I must have been absent from school the day they taught outlining because <laughs> I, I don't find that remotely helpful, and uh, I never do it. I find it very restricting because I feel like once it's outlined, then as I'm writing... I almost feel beholden to it, and it becomes this yeah. inner conflict of trying to deviate. I, I think if I was writing a novel and making it all up, I would I'd write all the you know I'd write scenes out, and that would become like an outline. But um, when you write nonfiction, you you're you're stuck with what actually happened, mm-hmm. and I um, I just try to look at it and say you know like wh- what what piece of this should go before the other piece and. Um, in what order did things actually happen? Um, what what ideas can go here versus here? And how does that relate to the action that you're actually seeing and those kinds of things? Now, are you at the point in your career where you're able to just call your editor and be like, yeah, I'm going to write about animal consciousness at this point? Or do you actually have to I can together? say that. Really? <laughs> he doesn't always say, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I do get... Uh, I have a fantastic, almost completely unique relationship with my editor. We have gotten to be incredibly close friends. He, he's almost old enough to be my father. Um, and oh, he could be a very young father, I guess. I think he's about 18 years older than me. And um, we just talk all the time. We do something socially. Uh, uh, you know, I often, often I go to his house and hang out, and we just talk about all kinds of interesting things. And sometimes he comes out on my boat, or we go kayaking. Um, I mean, very few people have a relationship like that with an editor. He's a real old-timey editor. He's been around several blocks, and he's known everybody, and he's an amazing, amazing man. And um, we can talk very casually about things I might want to write and bat them around and I do have to write a proposal because he needs to show that around in-house. But I, I do have the incredible luxury of writing brief, very casual proposals at this point. Sometimes he's told me, all right, you, you gave me 15 pages here. Just give me two pages so I can, you know, go to the, uh, go to the rest of the editors and, um, you know, try to just get this green-lighted. And so... Uh, sometimes I have ideas, and he says, nah, I don't know about that. And sometimes he has ideas, and it's not exactly... And But usually uh, in that conversation or out of that conversation comes something useful. Listener, I once said I froze whenever I had to answer what my occupation was. Can I own being a writer if I don't have a book to my name? So as I chatted with Carl, it occurred to me that the problem might be flipped for him. He's got no shortage of boxes to check. So where might writer land in that pecking order? I'm wondering at what point did you did you become really like, yeah, I'm like as much a writer as I am a conservationist. Well, um, I don't find it incredibly helpful to think about what I am. I I it's I, I'm just me. Okay, and. Um, I am mainly, I'm, I'm a person who, for some reason that I don't understand, I have always really loved animals and nature. And so those have been my hobbies. Those have been my education. Those have been my professional activities in three, at least, 
different kinds of things about about a decade doing research on wild animals about a decade doing policy work on trying to reform fisheries law mainly and uh now about 15 years of almost entirely writing and speaking but i'm just trying to be a as good a writer as I can be, and my training is entirely in science. I have no training, uh, you know, no schooling as a writer at all. I never took a class in writing of any kind. So um, all my writing is on-the-job training, and um, I do carry, you know, a very sciencey perspective with me. I, I like evidence, and I'm a a good observer of animals, and I have a lot of practice doing that. So I just try to bring it all to bear. And actually, you know, the other thing is that um, I, another thing about who and what I am is I have uh, just an innate good sense of rhythm, and I became a professional drummer, and I worked my way through college playing drums. And I, Which I think I've you always said applied you my rhythm, my, you know, my rhythmic sense and the sense of hearing things to how I construct sentences on the page and how they feel and how they sound is a big part of it to me. And, and I, you know, so I draw on my experience with music and, you know, and my, my musical, my innate musical um, capacity for that part of it too. So I just try to mobilize everything that I've got to try to make it as good as I can make it. It works. Do you still oh, play the drums? Thank you. I I do a bit, yes, uh, and I still have uh, I still have a drum set set up in the room that I write in, so that when I need to take a break, instead of running to the refrigerator, I usually um, I usually play the drums for twenty minutes or half an hour or something like that. Well, listener, speaking of drums, that's as great a segue as any for the ice cream challenge. So part of part of the podcast is us trying to kind of decode what it means to be a writer and the, and the mystery of writing. And so I was wondering if we might have some ice cream because there's a method to this madness. Okay, because I don't really get the ice cream part of it yes. except that I really like eating ice cream. There we go. All right. Cherry Garcia. Okay, great. And a whole gallon for me. Right? A whole gallon. We just got, we just got gallons and gallons here for you. So as you are enjoying... Cherry Garcia here. The idea is that we're giving each of the guests a similar experience and kind of seeing what we might glean of their process from how they respond to that experience. So my question here for you, Dr. Safina, in eating and enjoying the experience that is Cherry Garcia, how would you describe the experience of eating Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia? Well... Like many things, how it connects to memories um, greatly boosts the value. Because if I had never had this before and I didn't know anything about it, it would just be like, this is good ice cream. But I think about um, friends I had years and years and years ago who first were incredibly enthusiastic. They were, they were like um, evangelical about Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> it was sort of sacred to them. 
and um, there's a uh, there's a particular one of these stores that I've gone to many times in a very nice place that's a favorite place of mine. So I've been there with lots of friends. You know, it just you know it it hooks up to those. It evokes those kinds of those kinds of memories. This leads us to the second exercise. I'm wondering if I could ask you to indulge us with, which is, um, as anybody that's ever so you've never you said you've never taken a creative writing class right. on campus. Right. So we come offering gifts, which is the experience of being in a creative writing class. And one of the bane of any student is a writing prompt. So what we have is we have a common writing prompt that we've offered to each of the guests. And I was wondering if you might be interested. If you I gave lure you some, me here with ice cream, and then you give me a writing and then prompt. I give you a writing prompt. Wow! If um, I might give you some paper and a pen and a few minutes on the clock to write a moment that might come to you in seeing it, and then I'm going to ask you to read the first line and the last line. Listener, don't forget we'll be revealing the photo in a few weeks. Visit writersicecream.com for details. But first. Let's see what our resident drummer came up with. Okay. Boom. With time left on the clock. All right. So would you hit us with your first line? The road tilted upward as a bridge to nowhere, inviting and scornful at the same time. Whoa. I like that. All right. And your last line. I had, as they say, burned my bridges to get here. <laughs> so can you talk to us a little bit about I mean because listener doesn't know what the prompt is but can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach this did you have the ending in mind with where you began or did you just have a starting point you freeformed it how did you approach this no I just started by choosing part of the picture and uh, just wrote a couple of impressions that it suggested, and then I realized that it connected to a conversation I was having today with a good friend of mine who has made a very major move and is afraid that it might be a huge mistake for him. Hence the bridge. Mm-hmm. Hence the bridge. Carl, thank you very much. Would you mind autographing that to Writer's <laughs> Comma Ice Cream? <laughs> Okay. All right. Carl Safina's seventh book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, was published in 2015 and is available in bookstores and online. And as if writing the book wasn't challenging enough, he then adapted the narrative structure of his story one more time for a special TED Talk that has been viewed nearly 1.9 million times. Carl Safina knows how to tell a gripping true story. But where does that leave me, an aspiring novelist who hasn't even gotten the first book out of the gate, much less number seven? That's next month on Writer's Comma Ice Cream and a Book's Buzz with Susan Scarf Merrill. Until then, don't forget to check out writersicecream.com for new content every Sunday for things like Carl's full writing prompt, trailers for the next episode, and blogs on the craft of writing. ancient looking loose leaf paper but it saves the trees i don't know how long i've had this loose leaf paper mm -hmm. it's yellowed with age yellowed with age you're very better. ambitiously you've given me about 15 <laughs> sheets <laughs>